in March of 2014 in West Africa, there was an outbreak of Ebola. I think it rose to the level of epidemic. And there were even a few cases here in the United States, and panic began to seize people. They were afraid that they would come in contact with someone and then get Ebola, this terrible plague, which really has no definite cure. There were even some fearing of getting Ebola because they were in the same plane as someone else who had contracted the, the disease, not even in the same flight, just the same airplane. And... Uh, I remember a few Christian missionaries, medical missionaries, coming under fire because they, instead of staying away from this disease, they were going towards it. There were some doctors and aid workers who actually got Ebola themselves because they were treating those, having compassion on those who had Ebola in hopes that they might be saved. They ran toward the danger and not away from it. Uh, Something similar happened in the year 260 A.D. A terrible plague affected the Roman Empire. And we have some letters from Christians. Uh, Dionysius, in particular, the bishop of Alexandria, Egypt, wrote a letter to the church telling of the great sacrifices many Christians made. In that letter, he says, Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many, in nursing and curing others, transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner. A number of presbyters, deacons, and laymen's winning high commendation so that death in this form, the result of great piety and strong faith, seemed in every way the equal of martyrdom. Well, it causes me to wonder, what would I do if a plague of that sort hit Raleigh, North Carolina? And what would you do? Perhaps and probably your first thought would be to protect yourself from danger, to protect your family, those close to you. Let's run away from it. Let's seclude ourselves. Let's not get anywhere near anyone who might infect us with that disease. But I also tend to think that many of you would, in many ways, love your neighbor as yourself. You might be, you might, would be driven to show compassion on your brothers and sisters here in the church. Even overcoming that fear that you might be infected. What would it look like in, for us in everyday situations, the different trials that we face and brothers and sisters face and those unbelievers around us face, what would it look like for us to consistently run toward the danger and not away from it? to run toward the pain and the ugliness of this life and not away from it in efforts to care for those who are in need. Look with me at Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. Luke 10, verses 25 
There we read, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and, uh, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Our Father, we pray that you, by your Spirit, would work in your word and the truths of your word to cause us to love your world in a way that glorifies you and helps others. Help us not to look merely to our own concern, our own needs, but to the needs of those who are oppressed, those who are hurting, those who are sick, those who are plagued with all sorts of trials. Help us to have compassion on them as Jesus has had compassion on us. And use your word to affect us us in this way. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been going through our mission statement as a church. We want to love God's glory, we want to love God's people, and we want to love God's world. And so we are coming to the end of this three-part topical series where we won't have a particular text that I'm expounding. Rather, we'll go through uh, several different passages of Scripture to basically uh, exposit our mission statement as a church. So personally, I'm not really good at this. I don't enjoy this as much. I'm eager to get back to uh, expositing Scripture itself. But this is, this is helpful, it's necessary, that we be reminded of our commitment to one another. That we be reminded, why is it that we exist? Why are we here? What is it that we have committed to do with one another? So I've said in in another sermon in this series, what I'm aiming for is that we would kind of be reminded of this commitment we've made to one another and then up our game in some ways, up our commitment to these things that we hold dear. Uh, Next week, we'll return to a book of the Bible. I'll be preaching a short series through the book of Jonah. So you can go ahead and be reading through that book uh, in preparation for that. I'm really excited about that. But for today, we'll consider the last phrase of our mission statement. We exist to love God's world. And so in considering that, I want you to consider this theme statement. God's love for us, so that's where we begin, God's love for us, moves us to love God's world in word and in deed. God's love for us moves us to love God's world in both word and deed. 
The Bible often speaks of the world in a negative sense. So we might think of worldliness, or we might think of the world's wisdom versus God's wisdom. But when we say we want to love God's world, we're referring primarily to the people in this world. We're referring to all people. We're referring to the world in the sense of, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And this statement that we are loving God's world acknowledges that fundamentally this world and all who are in it belong to God. That he created all things for his glory. That he created all people to live for his glory. He is the king over all things and he has made all people for his glory in his own image, reflecting a part of who he is. So for our sermon this morning, we'll take just this theme statement that I've given one phrase at a time. God's love for us moves us to love God's world in both word and deed. So first consider just the fact that God's love for us is what moves us to love the world. We're not merely saying that God's commands move us to love God's world. Do you see the difference in that? We could say God commands us to love and therefore we, we love. He does command us to love others. As uh, Jason read from Mark twelve thirty one. he commands us to love God with all that we have and then the second command is like the first, love your neighbor as yourself. We are commanded to love. We should love. We're commanded to love our enemies even. When's the last time you took that message to heart? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Do good to those who do evil to you. And we know, as we spoke of in the last couple of sermons, that these commands that God gives us are commands including not simply avoiding sinning against others, but the positive aspect of actively loving others. So notice When you read the Ten Commandments, you may think primarily, as long long as I avoid these particular sins, then I'm keeping the commandments of God. But throughout Christianity, uh, Christians have understood that these commands refer not only to avoiding these certain sins, but actually positively acting out the opposite, carrying out the, the positive aim of the command. So, for instance, consider the command, you shall not murder. Well, the Heidelberg Catechism takes this this command and says, It is not enough that we do not kill any man in the manner mentioned above. For when God forbids envy, hatred, and anger, He commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves, to show patience, peace, meekness, mercy, and all kindness towards Him and prevent His hurt as much as lies in us and that we do good even to our enemies. Have you ever considered that the command to not murder actually implies that you actually show great kindness and patience and love toward your neighbor? But our love for God's world isn't merely out of a duty to obey His commands. It isn't merely out of a desire to obey God, out of a desire to please Him. It must begin there. It should come from that desire It must start there, but there should be more. So you all know the drill between especially young siblings. Maybe this was the case in your home as you were growing up. Brother hits sister. It could go the other way just as easily. 
The parents have a talk and end up saying, Now tell your sister you're sorry and ask her to forgive you. So begrudgingly and in a tone that totally betrays he means nothing of the sort, he says, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And hopefully what's going on here at least is that we as parents are training our children what, in what sorrow, in what asking for forgiveness, in what confessing looks like. So like baseball, when he gets enough reps in doing this, uh, you may affect something there. Hopefully some of it sticks. And then he knows the language later on in life for when he actually does become sorry and wants forgiveness. But in many cases, there's no inward sorrow here. There's no uh, inward affection for the other sibling. He's not really sorry. She's not really sorry for what she did. She'd do it again if she had the chance. There's no hurt in his own heart that he had wronged his sibling in this way. And really, as much as we might like to think otherwise, there's no amount of parenting strategy that you can do to make him really feel sorry. He might say the right words. He might sound like it. Uh, but you can't make them sorry. You can lead the horse to water, but you can't make him drink. And that's not ultimately the kind of obedience we're looking for either, as sons and daughters of the living God, one of mere obedience. That type of love for our neighbor done merely out of duty to obey isn't ultimately what we're after. We're after the heart. We want to aim to love our neighbors with genuine affection for them even our enemies this is the kind of love that we're after a love which comes ultimately not by sheer willpower or striving enough to finally feel some affection for others we're we're looking for the kind of love that comes from a changed heart so as we read last week first john 4 7 and 8 Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves, what? Has been born of God and knows God. It is those who are born from above that can begin loving this genuine sort of love we're looking for. A love which comes from a changed heart. Not merely, I do what my father says type of love, but I want to be what my father is type of love reflecting back his image in the way he has loved his own creation. It's the kind of love which comes from a knowledge that God has loved you when you were unlovable. It's the kind of love which comes from a knowledge that all people are made in the image of God and therefore to hate them is to hate God himself. Well, what if you know all that and you consider all that and you still don't feel love for your neighbor? What do you do? And I would say, maybe contrary to what some people would say, I would say, do it anyway. (laughs) And by doing those things which you know you ought to be doing, perhaps the affections you should feel will grow in your heart. So I would would kind of uh, give you the the, the, uh, command to confess your sin and then pretend like you enjoy doing it. I don't mean that you should be two-faced. I mean that you should confess your sin, that you're not feeling in the appropriate affection you should feel for your neighbor. Confess that sin to God. He knows it already. 
And then, as you confess your sin, do those things which you would be doing if you felt the way you should be feeling. So some people will say, well, you shouldn't really do good if you don't feel it. What kind of illogic is that? That that is completely false. Do the good that you should do and then confess that you don't feel the way you should feel. And then perhaps in your faithfulness, God will bless you with those affections. You should do the right things when we don't feel like it. But we also should examine. We shouldn't simply stop there and be content with that. We should ask, why is it that I'm not feeling the way I should feel toward these other people? Why don't I have the affections that I know I should have? Why, why am I not able to forgive as I should forgive? Why, why am I not able to take the initiative to care for this person? Why do I have no compassion or concern on these people? Why am I so stuck on myself and my own needs that I can't get beyond myself to care for others? Perhaps you're finding your joy in something other than ultimately God's love bestowed upon you in Christ. Perhaps you're finding your hope in something else. You're finding your value, your own self-worth in something other than the grace of God given to you in Christ. Perhaps you're like the seed that's been sown among the thorns and the the cares of this life are choking out your faith in God. Your, Your affections are more for this world than they are for God. But I'm sure perhaps there are other things for you. There are other things for you that are keeping you from doing the things you you inwardly even desire to do. You desire to to have affections for others. You just can't work it up within yourselves. And that's when we cry out, Oh Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you. I am dependent upon you to do this work in me because I cannot do it myself. God's love for us, ultimately, His, His grace to us, his compassion for us is what will change us and move us to love the world. So God's love for us moves us to love the world. So if you don't have love for the world, go back to the start again. Go back to God's love for you in Christ Jesus. But we want to consider more these ways in which we, we move towards the world in love. So consider the last parts of this statement. Two ways in which we are striving to love God's world. In both word and in deed. So loving God's world in word. We've, it seems, sometimes lost the value of kind words. Perhaps in in our society. We've lost the art of civility. We have, it seems, lost the art of disagreeing charitably. Can we disagree on big important issues and still speak kindly to to one another speak civilly to one another i think we ought to do that we we know the false saying saying sticks and stones may break my bones but words will never hurt me completely false there there are there is power in words But we're not speaking merely of kind words when we say we want to love God's world in word. We're speaking of a particular word. We are speaking of the gospel word. 
the word of God's good news to us in Jesus Christ. We're speaking about the word Paul speaks of in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Well, what is this word of the gospel? What is this, this gospel which is the power of God for salvation? Well, we read in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Here's the gospel message, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he rose again on the third day in accordance with the scripture. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. This is what we confess in the Apostles' Creed each month. We believe in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins to give us new life. This is what we sang with one another. The Lamb of God in my place. His blood poured out, my sin erased. It was my death. You died. I am raised to life. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the word we are seeking to love our world with. So we want to love God's world in word, particularly the word of the gospel, for this is a person's greatest need. To hear and receive the gospel. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? The truth of this passage is that people will not hear the gospel unless we tell it to them. It requires words. We cannot be content to let someone else have the responsibility for telling our family members, our friends, the good news of Jesus Christ. How will they hear without someone telling them? They won't. And therefore, they won't believe because they have not heard, because no one has spoken it to them. We have been sent, brothers and sisters, to love the world in word, the gospel word. So we are distinguished from those who merely, we as a church at CCR, we're distinguished from those who merely seek to do good without explicitly proclaiming the gospel. This is an essential part of what it means to love other people. You you ultimately can't love other people unless you're willing to share with them the word of the gospel as the Lord provides opportunity. But if we're not careful, we too will fall into this sort of idea. In some ways, it's easier just to do good to others without explicitly proclaiming the word of the gospel, isn't it? You get a lot more good press from simply doing good without explicitly preaching this exclusive gospel. There's salvation in none other than Jesus Christ. It is tempting sometimes to want to be the guy or the girl who's known for doing good to everyone but never offending people with this religious shtick about Jesus and the good news of the gospel. So you maybe have heard the question often asked of churches, would your town miss you if you just vanished one day? And the implied answer is, if you're doing good deeds, then they would miss you. And I say that that's actually only half right they'll miss your good deeds but they might be so excited that you finally shut your mouth about the gospel 
That's the kind of church we ought to be. Genuinely caring for people. Being eager to do good work so that our community sees that. Your neighborhood sees that you are a person who loves other people. But then we also ought to be speaking the word of the gospel. It will offend some, but others will receive it and have life eternal in Jesus' name. So, as we talk about speaking the word of the gospel, loving God's world in word, uh, today I'm actually not going to guilt you into doing that. Often, we preachers do that because we know we ought to do it, do it more. We, I'm, I'm not going to delve into all the reasons you don't Share the gospel. But what I do want to do is highlight the power of God's word. Consider even just the power of words that we use with one another. Words that we might hear on an occasion. Words that give life and encouragement and joy. I love you from the one you love the most. Friends reconciled when one says, I forgive you. The look on a woman's face when the doctor says to her, I don't know what has happened, but your cancer is completely gone. Words in themselves, just human words, have power to affect joy in our hearts. We're speaking about different realities in the world. Consider then the power from the Almighty God as He speaks His Word. It creates. It has power. So He says... Let there be light, and light springs into existence. Go back and read Genesis 1 and see that refrain, And God said. There is great power in the word of God. Consider the vision that God gave to Ezekiel in Ezekiel 37. He says, prophesy to these bones. So in this vision, Ezekiel is speaking. He's prophesying the word of God to these bones and they take on flesh and stand and rise into a mighty army. And God says, Israel, do not fear. I will raise you up from the dead and bring you out of your graves. And then we have a picture of that, an actual picture of that in John 11 when Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. How does a dead man hear the voice of Jesus? Because in speaking, Jesus actually gives life. That is the power of God's word. And then we see a spiritual, the spiritual reality of that in Acts 16 when Paul is speaking the words of the gospel to this group of women and the scripture says, and the Lord opened the heart of Lydia to receive and respond to what was spoken. God's power in His Word brings to life, raises up, it gives faith, it opens our eyes. See, we tend to think we need to explain someone into believing the good news of the gospel. I just need to say the right combination of words. I need to argue and convince. I need, I need to be smart enough to be able to encounter any of their objections and turn them in the right direction. Those are all good things, but that's not ultimately where the power is. The power is in the gospel. We're dealing with the supernatural here. The Holy Spirit of God who is accomplishing His work by the proclaimed Word of God. He is accomplishing His work in you right now as I am speaking. 
his word. He's creating faith where there was none. He's bringing to life where there was only death. He is opening the eyes of the blind. So consider, brothers and sisters, the power of God's word, particularly the power of the gospel. And be bold to speak it. Now we support uh, the Purdue's overseas. We are active in our community events in order to try to invite people to church and even in, in those instances proclaim the gospel. We want to go house to house. But I want you to consider for your, your own individual life, maybe your small group, maybe a small group of people, consider how you might love people in word in your own like, local neighborhood, in your own friendships, in your own sphere of influence. Maybe your small group wants to, to take that as a, a, a challenge. Speaking the word of the gospel and showing love in that way. This is one of the ways we love God's world, in word. The word of the gospel, which has power unlike anything in this world has ever seen. But we also want to love God's world indeed. So God's love for us moves us to love God's world in word and in deed. Now this distinguishes us from those who only seek to do good by proclaiming the gospel. That is the ultimate good. That is uh, the priority, I, I believe. We should be doing good by proclaiming the gospel. But we're distinguished from those who say you, you don't really need to do any good works. You just need to speak the gospel. That's what it means to love God's world. We're also distinguished from unbelievers who do good. We're not necessarily better at doing good deeds than unbelievers. They, they maybe, have, maybe could lap us around the track several times with their good deeds. But we're distinguished from them in that our good deeds spring from faith in God. They spring from a genuine love for God and love for neighbor. Ours is not a dead faith, but a living and active faith. As James 2, 14 through 17 says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body? What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. You know, there's, you could have arguments about what to do when a homeless person approaches you asking for money or for food. But even, you know, regardless of what you say on that, I've been on both sides of the argument at some time or another. But I have to honestly say, when I'm approached and I send them away with nothing, there's a pang in my conscience because of this, this verse. Inevitably, I, I can end up justifying myself for, for the action that I took. But maybe it ought to, to hurt a little bit. Maybe it, it ought to remind us of this passage so that we would not be lulled into thinking we always have an excuse for not doing anything to anyone. What good is it if we say we have faith, but we simply say, I don't have any money to give you, but I will pray for you. I'll pray that you get your needs taken care of. Works is an essential component of saving faith. 
Not in the sense that we are justified by works. We are justified by faith alone. You'll hear me trumpet that as long as I live. We are justified by faith alone. We are saved by grace alone because of the work of Jesus Christ alone and nothing that we could do or have done or ever will do. We are saved completely by His mercy and grace. But saving faith is never alone, as Martin Luther reminds us. It is accompanied with good works, kindness to others, love for God's world. So consider then, what practically are you doing to serve those in need around you? True religion, James also says, is caring for widows and orphans in their distress and keeping oneself unstained from the world. So if we go back to Luke chapter 10, 25 to 37, as we read, to whom are you being a good neighbor? Right? Jesus was asked, who is my neighbor? He's trying to justify himself, wanting to get out of carrying, actually carrying out this command to love his neighbor. Who is my neighbor? And so Jesus doesn't answer his question, but tells a story. I wish I could learn to answer questions like that. Beautiful. And he tells a story and he makes the most despised person of all the hero of the story, the Samaritan. And Jesus' question at the end of his story is, which one proved to be a neighbor? He makes him say it. He makes him say the one he despised the most because he showed mercy. Go and do likewise. In other words, prove to be a neighbor to those in need. Your question is not, well, who, who then do, is my neighbor? Who do I have a responsibility to? Your responsibility is to prove to be a neighbor to those in need, to show mercy to those who need it. Good works are not the gospel, but they are an aroma of the gospel. In other words, they put on display what the gospel accomplishes in the lives of believers. They, in, in a sense, they show others what the gospel is made of. A great generosity of love poured out on perhaps those who are unworthy and undeserving. So, coming back to our question at the beginning, what would you do if a plague hit close to home? Ultimately, you don't have to ask what you would do, you can actually ask, what are you doing about the plagues that are hitting all around you? For our country, our state, our city, our neighborhoods, they've all been plagued in many ways. So how have you responded to the plague of abortion that has affected our country for many years? Are you involved in some way in caring for widows and orphans in that respect? How have you responded to the plague of domestic abuse in our nation and in our churches that often goes unspoken of, brushed under the rug? How have you responded to other plagues affecting widows and orphans? How have you responded to the plague of homelessness and poverty? How have you responded to the plague of sin that is affecting your neighbor down the street and their marriage and their relationships and their their alcohol problem or their drug problem? How are you responding to the plagues affecting your family members, your co-workers, 
How have you responded to the plague of lostness? There are enough plagues in our world that you can't respond to them all. But what would it look like for you, maybe another member of the church? What would it look like for your small group? What would it look like for your family? To say, we're going to have a couple of priorities in loving God's world together. And where are your passions together? And see how you can carry out this love that God has demonstrated for you, this love that has been poured out in your heart by the gospel, how you can then freely give it to others. God's love for us moves us to love God's world, both in word and in deed. May God do this work in us for his glory and for the good of God's world. Let's pray together.